Hey guys, sorry it took so long for me to get to this second half of Brnovich v. DNC, but I've been a little bit under the weather. So now, without further ado, we give you the second half of Brnovich v. DNC. And what is a mere inconvenience or usual burden anyway? The drafters of the Voting Rights Act understood that social and historical conditions, including disparities in education, wealth, and employment, often affect opportunities to vote. What does not prevent one citizen from casting a vote might prevent another. How is a judge supposed to draw an inconvenience line in some reasonable place, taking those differences into account? Consider a law banning the handing out of water to voters. No more than, or not even, an inconvenience when lines are short. But what of when they are, as in some neighborhoods, hours long? The point here is that judges lack any objective way to decide which voting obstacles are mere and which are not. For all voters at all times. And so section two does not ask the question. The majority's multiple ways to vote factor is similarly flawed. True enough, a state with three ways to vote, say on election day, early in person, or by mail, may be more open than a state with only one on election day and some other statute might care about that. But Section 2 does not. What it cares about is that a state's political processes are equally open to voters of all races. And a state's electoral process is not equally open if, for example, the state only makes Election Day voting by members of one race peculiarly difficult. The House report on Section 2 addresses that issue. It explains that an election system would violate Section 2 if minority citizens had a lesser opportunity than white citizens to use absentee ballots. Even if the minority citizens could just as easily vote in person, the scheme would result in unequal access to the political process. That is not some piece of contestable legislative history. It is the only reading of Section 2 possible given the statute's focus on equality. Maybe the majority does not mean to contest that proposition. Its discussion of this supposed factor is short and cryptic. But if the majority does intend to excuse so much discrimination, it is wrong making one method of voting less available to minority citizens than to whites necessarily means giving the former less opportunity than other members of the electorate to participate in the political process. The majority's history and commonality factor also pushes the inquiry away from what the statute demands. The oddest part of the majority's analysis is the idea that what was standard practice when Section 2 was amended in 1982 is a relevant consideration. The 1982 state of the world 
is no part of the Section 2 test. An election rule prevalent at that time may make voting harder for minority than for white citizens. Section 2 then covers such a rule, as it covers any other. And contrary to the majority's unsupported speculation, Congress intended exactly that. Section 2 was meant to disrupt the status quo, not to preserve it, to eradicate then-current discriminatory practices, not to set them in amber. And as to election rules common now, the majority oversimplifies. Even if those rules are unlikely to violate Section 2 everywhere, they may easily do so somewhere. That is because the demographics and political geography of states vary widely, and Section 2's application depends on place-specific facts. As we have recognized, the statute calls for an intensely local appraisal, not a count-up-the-states exercise. This case, as I'll later discuss, offers a perfect illustration of how the difference between those two approaches can matter. That leaves only the majority's discussion of state interests, which is again skewed so as to limit Section 2 liability. No doubt that under our precedent, a state interest in an election rule is a legitimate factor to be considered. But the majority wrongly dismisses the need for the closest possible fit between means and end, that is, between the terms of the rule and the state's asserted interest. In the past, this court has stated that a discriminatory election rule must fall, no matter how weighty the interest claimed, if a less biased law would not significantly impair that interest. And, as the majority concedes, we apply that kind of means-end standard in every other context, employment, housing, banking, where the law addresses racially discriminatory effects. There, the rule must be strictly necessary to the interest. The majority argues that the text of those provisions differs from Section 2's. But if anything, Section 2 gives less weight to competing interests. Unlike in most discrimination laws, they enter the inquiry only through the provision's reference to the totality of circumstances. Through, then, a statutory backdoor. So, the majority falls back on the idea that demanding such a tight fit would have the effect of invalidating a great many neutral voting regulations. But a state interest becomes relevant only when a voting rule, even if neutral on its face, is found not neutral in operation. Only, that is, when the rule provides unequal access to the political process. Apparently, the majority does not want to invalidate too many of those actually discriminatory rules. But Congress had a different goal in enacting Section 2.
the majority's approach, which would ask only whether a discriminatory law reasonably pursues important state interests, gives election officials too easy an escape from Section 2. Of course, preventing voter intimidation is an important state interest. And, of course, preventing election fraud is the same. But those interests are also easy to assert groundlessly or pretextually in voting discrimination cases. Congress knew that when it passed Section 2. Election officials can all too often, the Senate report noted, offer a non-racial rationalization for even laws that purposely discriminate. A necessity test filters out those offerings. It thereby prevents election officials from flouting, circumventing, or discounting Section 2's command not to discriminate. In that regard, the past offers a lesson to the present. Throughout American history, election officials have asserted anti-fraud interests in using voter suppression laws. Poll taxes, the classic mechanism to keep black people from voting, were often justified as preserving the purity of the ballot box and facilitating honest elections. A raft of election regulations, including elaborate registration procedures and early poll closings, similarly excluded white immigrants, Irish, Italians, and so on, from the polls on the ground of preventing fraud and corruption. Take even the majority's example of a policy advancing an important state interest, the use of private voting booths in which voters marked their own ballots. In the majority's high-minded account, that innovation, then known as the Australian voting system for the country that introduced it, served entirely to prevent undue influence. But when adopted, it also prevented many illiterate citizens, especially African Americans, from voting. And indeed, that was partly the point. As an 1892 Arkansas song went, The Australian ballot works like a charm. It makes them think and scratch. And when a Negro gets a ballot, he has certainly got his match. Across the South, the Australian ballot decreased voter participation among whites by anywhere from 8% to 28%, but among African Americans by anywhere from 15% to 45%. Does that mean secret ballot laws violate Section 2 today? Of course not. But should the majority's own example give us all a bit of pause? Yes, it should. It serves as a reminder that states have always found it natural to wrap discriminatory policies in election integrity garb. Congress enacted Section 2 to prevent those maneuvers from working. 
It knew that states and localities had over time enacted measure after measure imposing discriminatory voting burdens. And it knew that governments were proficient in justifying those measures on non-racial grounds. So Congress called a halt. It enacted a statute that would strike down all unnecessary laws, including facially neutral ones, that result in members of a racial group having unequal access to the political process. But the majority is out of sympathy with that measure. The majority thinks a statute that would remove those laws is not, as Justice Ginsburg once called it, consequential, efficacious, and amply justified. Instead, the majority thinks it too radical to stomach. The majority objects to an excessive transfer of the authority to set voting rules from the states to the federal courts. It even sees that transfer as undemocratic. But maybe the majority should pay more attention to the historical background that it insists does not tell us how to decide this case. That history makes clear the incongruity in interpreting this statute of the majority's peon to state authority, and conversely, its denigration of federal responsibility for ensuring non-discriminatory voting rules. The Voting Rights Act was meant to replace state and local election rules that needlessly make voting harder for members of one race than for others. The text of the act perfectly reflects that objective. The democratic principle it upholds is not one of states' rights as against federal courts. The democratic principle it upholds is the right of every American, of every race, to have equal access to the ballot box. The majority today undermines that principle as it refuses to apply the terms of the statute. By declaring some racially discriminatory burdens inconsequential and by refusing to subject asserted state interests to serious means and scrutiny, the majority enables voting discrimination. Part 3. Just look at Arizona. Two of that state's policies disproportionately affect minority citizens' opportunity to vote. The first, the out-of-precinct policy, results in Hispanic and African-American voters' ballots being thrown out at a statistically higher rate than those of whites. And whatever the majority might say about the ordinariness of such a rule, Arizona applies it in extraordinary fashion. Arizona is the national outlier in dealing with out-of-precinct votes, with the next worse offender nowhere in sight. The second rule, the ballot collection ban, makes voting meaningfully more difficult for Native American citizens than for others. And nothing about how that ban is applied is usual either. 
this time because of how many of the state's Native American citizens need to travel long distances to use the mail. Both policies violate Section 2 on a straightforward application of its text. Considering the totality of circumstances, both result in members of some races having less opportunity than other members of the electorate to participate in the political process and to elect a representative of their choice. The majority reaches the opposite conclusion because it closes its eyes to the facts on the ground. Section A. Arizona's out-of-precinct policy requires discarding any Election Day ballot cast elsewhere than in a voter's assigned precinct. Under the policy, officials throw out every choice in every race, including national or statewide races, that appear identically on every precinct's ballot. The question is whether that policy unequally affects minority citizens' opportunity to cast a vote. Although the majority portrays Arizona's use of the rule as unremarkable, the state is, in fact, a national aberration when it comes to discarding out-of-precinct ballots. In 2012, about 35,000 ballots across the country were thrown out because they were cast at the wrong precinct. Nearly one in three of those discarded votes, 10,979, was cast in Arizona. As the Court of Appeals concluded, and the chart below indicates, Arizona threw away ballots in that year at 11 times the rate of second-place discarder, Washington State. Somehow, the majority labels that difference marginal, but it is anything but. More recently, the number of discarded ballots in the state has gotten smaller. Arizona counties have increasingly abandoned precinct-based voting in favor of county-wide vote centers, so the out-of-precinct rule has fewer votes to operate on and the majority primarily relies on those latest 2016 numbers. But across the five elections at issue in this litigation, 2008 to 2016, Arizona threw away far more out-of-precinct votes, almost 40,000, than did any other state in the country. Votes in such numbers can matter, enough for Section 2 to apply. The majority obliquely suggests not comparing the smallish number of thrown-out votes, minority and non-minority alike, to the far larger number of votes cast and counted. But elections are often fought and won at the margins, certainly in Arizona. Consider the number of votes separating the two presidential candidates in the most recent election, 10,457. That is fewer votes than Arizona discarded under the out-of-precinct policy 
in two of the prior three presidential elections. This court previously rejected the idea, the erroneous assumption, that a small group of voters can never influence the outcome of an election. For that reason, we held that even a small minority group can claim Section 2 protection. Similarly here, the out-of-precinct policy, which discards thousands upon thousands of ballots in every election, affects more than sufficient votes to implicate Section 2's guarantee of equal electoral opportunity. And the out-of-precinct policy operates unequally. Ballots cast by minorities are more likely to be discarded. In 2016, Hispanics, African Americans, and Native Americans were about twice as likely, or said another way, 100% more likely to have their ballots discarded than whites. And it is possible to break that down a bit. 60% of the voting in Arizona is from Maricopa County. There, Hispanics were 110% more likely, African Americans 86% more likely, and Native Americans 73% more likely to have their ballots tossed. Pima County, the next largest county, provides another 15% of the statewide vote. There, Hispanics were 148% more likely, African Americans 80% more likely, and Native Americans 74% more likely to lose their votes. The record does not contain statewide figures for 2012, but in Maricopa and Pima counties, the percentages were about the same as in 2016. Assessing those disparities, the plaintiff's expert found, and the district court accepted, that the discriminatory impact of the out-of-precinct policy was statistically significant, meaning, again, that it was highly unlikely to occur by chance. The majority is wrong to assert that those statistics are highly misleading. In the majority's view, they can be dismissed because the great mass of voters are unaffected by the out-of-precinct policy. But Section 2 is less interested in absolute terms, as the majority calls them, than in relative ones. Arizona's policy creates a statistically significant disparity between minority and white voters. Because of the policy, members of different racial groups do not in fact have an equal likelihood of having their ballots counted. Suppose a state decided to throw out 1% of the Hispanic vote each election. Presumably, the majority would not approve the action just because 99% of the Hispanic vote is unaffected. Nor would the majority say that Hispanics in that system have an equal shot of casting an effective ballot. Here, the policy is not so overt, but under Section 2, that difference does not matter because the policy results in statistically significant inequality 
it implicates Section 2. And the kind of inequality that the policy produces is not the kind only a statistician could see. A rule that throws out each and every election thousands of votes cast by minority citizens is a rule that can affect election outcomes. If you were a minority vote suppressor in Arizona or elsewhere, you would want that rule in your bag of tricks. You would not think it remotely irrelevant. And the case against Arizona's policy grows only stronger the deeper one digs. The majority fails to conduct the searching, practical evaluation of past and present reality that Section 2's totality of circumstances inquiry demands. Had the majority done so, it would have discovered why Arizona's out-of-precinct policy has such a racially disparate impact on voting opportunity. Much of the story has to do with the siting and shifting of polling places. Arizona moves polling places at a startling rate. Maricopa County, recall Arizona's largest by far, changed 40% or more of polling places before both the 2008 and the 2012 elections. In 2012, the election with the best data, voters affected by those changes had an out-of-precinct voting rate that was 40% higher than other voters did. And critically, Maricopa County's relocations hit minority voters harder than others. In 2012, the county moved polling stations in African-American and Hispanic neighborhoods 30% more often than in white ones. The odds of those changes leading to mistakes increased yet further because the affected areas are home to citizens with relatively low education and income levels. And even putting relocations aside, the siting of polling stations in minority areas caused significant out-of-precinct voting. Hispanic and Native American voters had to travel further than white voters did to their assigned polling places. And all minority voters were disproportionately likely to be assigned to polling places other than the ones closest to where they lived. Small wonder, given such citing decisions, that minority voters found it harder to identify and get to their correct precincts. But the majority does not address these matters. Facts also undermine the state's asserted interests, which the majority hangs its hat on. A government interest as even the majority recognizes, is merely one factor to be considered in Section 2's totality analysis. Here, the state contends that it needs the out-of-precinct policy to support a precinct-based voting system, but 20 other states combine precinct-based systems with mechanisms for partially counting out-of-precinct ballots, 
that is, counting the votes for offices like president or governor. And the district court found that it would be administratively feasible for Arizona to join that group. Arizona, echoed by the majority, objects that adopting a partial counting approach would decrease compliance with the vote-in-your-precinct rule by reducing the penalty for a voter's going elsewhere. But there is more than a little paradox in that response. We know from the extraordinary number of ballots Arizona discards that its current system fails utterly to induce compliance. Presumably, that is because the system, most notably in its placement and shifting of polling places, sows an unparalleled level of voter confusion. A state that makes compliance with an election rule so unusually hard is in no position to claim that its interests in inducing compliance outweighs the need to remedy the race-based discrimination that rule has caused. Section B. Arizona's law mostly banning third-party ballot collection also results in a significant race-based disparity in voting opportunities. The problem with that law again lies in facts nearly unique to Arizona. Here, the presence of rural Native American communities that lack ready access to mail service. Given that circumstance, the Arizona statute discriminates in just the way Section 2 proscribes. The majority once more comes to a different conclusion only by ignoring the local conditions with which Arizona's law interacts. The critical facts for evaluating the ballot collection rule have to do with mail service. Most Arizonans vote by mail, but many rural Native American voters lack access to mail service, to a degree hard for most of us to fathom. Only 18% of Native voters in rural counties receive home mail delivery, compared to 86% of white voters living in those counties. And for many or most, there is no nearby post office. Native Americans in rural Arizona often must travel 45 minutes to two hours just to get to a mailbox. And between a quarter to a half of households in these Native communities do not have a car. So getting ballots by mail and sending them back poses a serious challenge for Arizona's rural Native Americans. For that reason, an unusually high rate of Native Americans used to return their early ballots with the assistance of third parties. As the district court found, for many Native Americans living in rural locations, voting is an activity that requires the active assistance of friends and neighbors. So, in some Native communities, third-party collection of ballots mostly by fellow clan members, became standard practice, and stopping it, 
as one tribal election official testified, would be a huge devastation. Arizona has always regulated these activities to prevent fraud. State law makes it a felony offense for a ballot collector to fail to deliver a ballot. It is also a felony for a ballot collector to tamper with a ballot in any manner. And as the district court found, tamper-evident envelopes and a rigorous voter signature verification procedure protect against any such attempts. For those reasons and others, no fraud involving ballot collection has ever come to light in the state. Still, Arizona enacted, with full knowledge of the likely discriminatory consequences, the near-blanket ballot collection ban challenged here. The first version of the law, much less stringent than the current one, passed the Arizona legislature in 2011. But the Department of Justice, in its Section 5 review, expressed skepticism about the statute's compliance with the Voting Rights Act, and the legislature decided to repeal the law rather than see it blocked. Then, this court decided Shelby County. With Section 5 gone, the state legislature felt free to proceed with a new ballot collection ban, despite the potentially discriminatory effects that the preclearance process had revealed. The enacted law contains limited exceptions for family members and caregivers. But it includes no similar exceptions for clan members or others with native kinship ties. They and anyone else who picks up a neighbor's ballot and takes it to a post office or delivers it to an election site is punishable as a felon. Put all of that together, and Arizona's ballot collection ban violates Section 2. The ban interacts with conditions on the ground, most crucially, disparate access to mail service to create unequal voting opportunities for Native Americans. Recall that only 18% of rural Native Americans in the state have home delivery. That travel times of an hour or more to the nearest post office are common. That many members of the community do not have cars. Given those facts, the law prevents many Native Americans from making effective use of one of the principal means of voting in Arizona. What is an inconsequential burden for others is for these citizens a severe hardship, and the state has shown no need for the law to go so far. Arizona, as noted above, already has statutes in place to deter fraudulent collection practices. Those laws give every sign of working. Arizona has not offered any evidence of fraud in ballot collection or even an account of a harm threatening to happen. And anyway, 
Arizona did not have to entirely forego a ballot collection restriction to comply with Section 2. It could, for example, have added an exception to the statute for native clan or kinship ties to accommodate the special, intensely local situation of the rural Native American community. That Arizona did not do so shows, at best, selective indifference to the voting opportunities of its Native American citizens. The majority's opinion fails to acknowledge any of these facts. It quotes extensively from the district court's finding that the ballot collection ban does not interfere with the voting opportunities of minority groups generally, but it never addresses the court's separate finding that the ban poses a unique burden for Native Americans. Except in a pair of footnotes responding to this dissent, the term Native American appears once, count it, once, in the majority's five-page discussion of Arizona's ballot collection ban. So, of course, that community's strikingly limited access to mail service is not addressed. In the majority's alternate world, the collection ban is just a usual burden of voting for everyone. And in that world, fraud is a real risk of ballot collection as to every community in every circumstance, just because the state in litigation asserts that it is. The state need not even show that the discriminatory rule it enacted is necessary to prevent the fraud it purports to fear. So the state has no duty to substitute a non-discriminatory rule that would adequately serve its professed goal. Like the rest of today's opinion, the majority's treatment of the collection ban thus flouts what Section 2 commands, the eradication of election rules resulting in unequal opportunities for minority voters. Part 4 Congress enacted the Voting Rights Act to address a deep fault of our democracy, the historical and continuing attempt to withhold from a race of citizens their fair share of influence on the political process. For a century, African Americans had struggled and sacrificed to wrestle their voting rights from a resistant nation. The statute they and their allies at long last attained made a promise to all Americans. From then on, Congress demanded the political process would be equally open to every citizen, regardless of race. One does not hear much in the majority opinion about that promise. One does not hear much about what brought Congress to enact the Voting Rights Act. What Congress hoped for it to achieve 
and what obstacles to that vision remain today. One would never guess that the act is, as the president who signed it wrote, monumental. For all the opinion reveals, the majority might be considering any old piece of legislation, say the Lanham Act or E-R-I-S-A. But then, at least, the majority should treat the Voting Rights Act as if it were ordinary legislation. The court always says that it must interpret a statute according to its text, that it has no warrant to override congressional choices. But the majority today flouts those choices with abandon. The language of Section 2 is as broad as broad can be. It applies to any policy that results in disparate voting opportunities for minority citizens. It prohibits without any need to show bad motive, even facially neutral laws that make voting harder for members of one race than of another, given their differing life circumstances. That is the expansive statute Congress wrote, and that our prior decisions have recognized. But the majority today lessens the law, cut Section 2 down to its own preferred size. The majority creates a set of extra-textual exceptions and considerations to sap the Act's strength and to save laws like Arizona's. No matter what Congress wanted, the majority has other ideas. This court has no right to remake Section 2, Maybe some think that vote suppression is a relic of history, and so the need for a potent Section 2 has come and gone. But Congress gets to make that call. Because it has not done so, this court's duty is to apply the law as it is written. The law that confronted one of this country's most enduring wrongs, pledged to give every American of every race an equal chance to participate in our democracy, and now stands as the crucial tool to achieve that goal. That law, of all laws, deserves the sweep and power Congress gave it. That law, of all laws, should not be diminished by this court. We've come to the end of the episode, and as always, if you'd like to reach out or learn a little more about the show, visit whatscotuswroteus.podbean.com. Until next episode, Thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.